Welcome to the Painting of the Week podcast, where we look at some of the most significant paintings throughout history. Introducing your hosts, Phil Grabsky and Laura Bentham. Hello, my name's Phil. I'm with my friend Laura, and this is our arts podcast. What we're going to do today for the next 25, 30 minutes is talk about a painting that not so long ago, was voted Britain's favourite painting. Uh, It's The Fighting Temeraire, which was painted in 1839 by Joseph Mallord William Turner, and it's at the National Gallery. Now, I guess the best way of, of doing a podcast like this is that you guys bring the picture up and have a look at it. Um, and hopefully we can attach the picture to the podcast or you can find it online. But I've got the picture or, you know, a copy of it, obviously, in front of me. And what it shows is one of the ships that actually fought at the Battle of Trafalgar. One of those extraordinary wooden vessels. Um, and it's being towed by a steamer. Um, and it's actually being towed to be scrapped. It's a fantastic picture in the sense that it's a real moment of transition from ships that were at the mercy of wind to obviously a a time of steam power and the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. It's no accident. That's obviously what Turner is talking about in this painting and talks about in many of his paintings. It's a, a, a beautiful painting, which we'll talk about, and the techniques that he uses are, are, are wonderful. Um, the subject matter is uh, fascinating. That Again, that transition from wind to steam, um, that sense of, I mean, he, he Turner is only painting this some, what, 24 years after the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, and the Temeraire was a, a pretty key vessel in that in that battle, which we can talk about. Um, but it's also interesting that it's Britain's favourite, or was once voted Britain's favourite painting. And you sometimes you do wonder, well, you wonder about the veracity of polls like that. Um, but you also wonder, what it, what is it about this painting that makes people so attracted to it? So, Laura, <laughs> now I know you've ghost, you've been to the National Gallery many times. I know I you have. We're, we're both based in Brighton, by the way. So for us to go to London, it's relatively easy when the trains are working. Um, and right now it's really easy because the trains are working. And there's nobody on them um, because of COVID. But for us, it takes about an hour, an hour and a half to get to the National Gallery. And I know that Laura pops up there to wander around. Um, but I'm not sure that you knew too much about this painting. Is that right? Okay, I literally know nothing about this painting or did know nothing about this painting. Perfect. You said to me on Tuesday, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you want me to say, Laura, we're going to talk about Turner. And you said it quite quickly, the fighting, and I didn't catch the last word, so I wrote down tangerine <laughs> because <laughs> I was too nervous to look too stupid. And then I came away and looked it up and had to spend the rest of this week Trying to find trying a painting to find called The Fighting Tangerine. <laughs> By Turner. Now I know it's voted Britain's best painting. 
which you just, uh, I feel even more dark. And Britain's favourite fruit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know what to say. Um, Except the fact that when I did find the painting, the finding Temeraire, which I've actually had to equally learn how to pronounce and have said it seven times, because apparently if you say something seven times, it sticks into your head. So I've said it a lot more than that, obviously. Uh, I thought it was magical and I loved it. And it is honestly the first time I've ever really looked at it. So, Well, point number one. Mm. So I've been making arts films now for getting on for 25 years and the absolute primary first thing is to never be ashamed to say what you don't understand. I think there is a bit of an issue with art that people think, oh, I'm not sure I understand this. Therefore, I'm going to stay quiet. And I think there are people who write about art or curators or art historians or TV art presenters who will sometimes try to put across the sense of they have somehow got the clues and the keys to understanding art. And it's a higher level of understanding that we ordinary mortals don't have. Well, that's 100 percent for sure. I would never have. I would never have got involved with anything like this if it hadn't been for you the other day, which is really lovely. So number one thing is that that is completely contrary to what these artists are trying to do. Yeah. They're trying to communicate with as many people as they possibly can. And many of them would be horrified by the sense that there is a kind of a coterie. I'm exaggerating a bit now, but there's a coterie. In fact, somebody the other day was talking about the high table of people trying to say, you know, actually, you know what, art is really something that's so complex and really only we can understand it and you guys are better off watching soaps on television. Complete nonsense. Turner would have wanted this painting to have been seen and understood by as many people as possible. That said, always one of the key questions to ask about a painting is who commissioned it and where was it intended to be shown? You know, sometimes we talk about the effect a painting would have had on some on, on people. But in fact, if you look a bit more into the history of a painting, it may have been painted for a private collector who had no intention of showing it to anybody except his immediate friends and family. So do you not know who commissioned it then? I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Phil. <laughs> I was thinking, as I was saying that, I was thinking, Lord, don't ask, don't ask, because I don't okay. know. <laughs> um, that's not a good start. <laughs> I think with Turner, I mean, Turner was... Um, If you have looked at the history of the Impressionists or French painting in the 19th century, there was something called the Salon. The Salon was really, it was an annual event and it was held in a building which no longer, initially in a building which no longer exists in Paris. But imagine something like a a small crystal palace or anyway, it's a big exhibition hall. And for all artists, most artists wanted to exhibit there. Okay. And the paintings would literally be hung next to each other from floor to ceiling uh, in alphabetical order uh, often. Occasionally some would manage to get slightly better positions, i.e. on eye level. But there are plenty of stories of people like Manet getting their paintings accepted, for which they were very grateful, and then going to the exhibition hall and their paintings really high up, but it's over a doorway and it's over, it's in a corridor and they'd be horrified. I guess the nearest equivalent for us would be the Royal Academy Summer Show, where they do a similar kind of thing. Um, You wanted your paintings to be shown there because while it was a kind of stamp of establishment approval, which even the Impressionists, 
who are an f- absolutely wonderful group of artists that we've made films about many times and I've read much about. Most of them wanted to be in the salon for various reasons, even, even though it was quite a conservative um, selection process. Anyway, there was, a, there was the equivalent thing at the Royal Academy in Britain, and artists like Turner and Constable and many others wanted their paintings to be shown in the summer show. And again, it was to be, it was a way of them presenting their paintings to their peers, which is very important, uh, to the public in large, and I guess to prospective buyers. Okay. Now, I don't know actually whether this was when it was shown, first shown, whether it already had a buyer, whether he intended to sell it. Um, I couldn't tell you offhand. Okay. But let's look at the painting. Yeah, I love it. So one thing about paintings is is I think that we are drawn to paintings where we understand the narrative. I think the issue often with contemporary art is sometimes we look at it and we don't actually understand what the story is. Right. Um, I've been round the Tate with a fantastic um I mean, I've worked, made a hundred films with this guy, Tim Marlowe. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's now the director of the Design Museum. Um, he knows contemporary art inside out. Now, to go around the Tate Museum with him is completely different than wandering around on your own because he, he opens the doors. He says, the reason that glass of water is on that shelf high up on the wall is because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is what I need. I need somebody to do that with me. My thing, my thought though, and I apply this to when I'm making films, is that actually it shouldn't be that hard. You know, I want people to be able to follow my stories. And I think we as an audience often are drawn to paintings where the narrative is clearer. So a recent film that I made for exhibition on screen was Easter in Art. And I have to be honest, religious paintings are often not my first port of call. At a national gallery, for example, I would go to Dutch art where it's really obvious it's a it's a woman reading a letter or it's I don't know, or impressionist art and it's really clear it's you know a couple walking why, why are you always drawn to those why are you always drawn where, where did you why why this painting even to start with was it well so something I, that was came from your we always you know it's part of your life well Turner is slightly different but I mean I think part of the appeal of this picture mm. is that we can look at it and we know immediately that that is a a seascape with a number yeah. a number of ships on it. Mm-hmm. So you know what it is. Okay. And I think part of the appeal of impressionist art is that, you know, even though it's, it's not realistic, but you still know it is a couple dancing or it okay, is people yeah. on a river mm-hmm. or so that's not too confusing. Whereas if you look at religious art, yeah. if you don't know who St. Andrew is mm. or uh, you don't know why the cross is upside down was, you know, you, you need to know the iconography and we're not really taught the iconography these days. So it, it's confusing. I don't know whether I was taught a lot of this film, to be fair. Well, you look at this painting and you're drawn to it. First of all, the, the narrative. So you have that enormous wooden ship and the fact that he's got the steam steamer in front of it just gives you a sense of scale, doesn't it? Uh-huh. <clears throat> and the thing that I suddenly, I mean, I've, I've made, um, Two films. I made a series of films about Nelson and I made a film about the Battle of Trafalgar. Okay. I absolutely love doing the research for those films. Yeah. Um, 
the history films I've made, I just couldn't stop reading. And absolutely, um, Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar and, and life on these wooden ships is so interesting. Right. Okay. And, you know, many of the terms we still have to this day, for example, you know, the term three square meals a day. Yeah. You've heard the term. Have you ever thought to yourself, why? Yes. Oh, go on then. I have no idea. So on board ship, um, which obviously when you go out to sea, it's kind of rocky, isn't it? And it's un- unpleasant and you've got the waves and so forth. Oh, okay. They found that square plates were much easier in terms of um, not only being keeping their uh, position on the table, but for storage. Okay. Something that's square is much easier to store than something that's circular. So all the shipmates had square plates. And one of the great advantages, you know, we know, we heard about being press ganged. So we've heard about down in Portsmouth, you know, if you went out and got drunk, you might find, wake up on a ship heading to Spain or the Caribbean. (laughs) (laughs) Press ganged. Yeah. But actually, a lot of people signed up. And the reason they signed up was that people were poor and people didn't have much to eat and didn't have a regular job. And actually, in the Navy, yeah. one of the appeals was you were going to get three meals a day. Right, okay. Um, but there's all sorts of cat and nine tails. So letting the cat out of the bag, you know that phrase? Yes. So if you, if you, got, if you were um, caught doing something improper on board a ship, you were going to get whipped. And this thing, this cat, of, it's called cat of nine tails. And the nine tails are basically ropes that were knotted. So nine strands of rope, all little knots. And then you were beaten with that, Ooh. which hurt. So that's, mm. that's known as letting the cat out okay. of the bag. Uh, there's all sorts of phrases. Oh, come from, on forever. And the whole tale of the, we're going off on a tangent here, but the whole yeah. tale of the Battle of Trafalgar was, you know, for 18, I think it's 18 months, Nelson is at sea stalking the Spanish fleet. Uh, actually it's a combined Spanish-French fleet and he crosses the Atlantic to the Caribbean he can't quite catch up with them and they escape and and they end up they go into port in Cadiz and, and uh, Nelson is he's kind of at sea waiting for them to come out and at some point he thinks they have to come out and the Spanish and French are a bit nervous about coming out but in the end they they do and they, they, Nelson then appears. And it's, it's such a brilliant story. He comes out of this rising sun so that they're blinded by the light. They don't initially see his fleet coming. And this, he, Nelson knew this was going to be like a definitive naval battle to, to, you know, to sort out or play its part in the Napoleonic Wars. Right. Normally. Okay. So if you look at this boat, look at this ship. Yeah. You look really carefully. Mm-hmm you'll see what are known as portholes mm-hmm. on the side of the ship. So if you look uh, above the steamer, you've got the front of the ship, you'll see tiny, you'll see little black smudges. Yeah. Okay, they're portholes. Mm-hmm. So when they were opened, that's where the cannon would come out. Mm-hmm. So if you go down to Portsmouth now, nature is victory is still there. Yeah, and I've been there. Okay, so mm. you've seen the cannons. Mm. They open these portholes and they push the cannons out. Now, the thing about a cannon is it can only fire one way. It can only fire the direction it's facing. So the traditional the traditional uh, way that these ships would fight was they would line up side by side and they would, would raise the portholes and you would fire straight out the side. And basically, um, you know, those cannon balls, when they hit, it was, it was murderous. When they hit 
Right, okay, yes. Not only would they go flying through the ship, Mm. but anyone that was in the way would just be smashed a bit, decapitated, Mm -hmm. you know. But also they would send splinters at a velocity that, again, would kill people. I mean, it was just dreadful. Yeah. But it's side on side. Now, Nelson, so the victory is his flagship. Mm -hmm. So that's where he's watching what's going on. But but the Temeraire was one of his main battleships. And what Nelson did, wasn't the first time, he'd done it before, I think the Battle of Copenhagen, but what he did here, which was so kind of revolutionary and brave, was instead of lining up line by line and just getting into a cannon battle, he decides to go straight for them. So he sails in three columns, three separate columns, he sails straight for the French-Spanish fleet. Right. Now... What is the problem with that? What is, why is that so dangerous? Well, there's no cannons no. facing forwards, or maybe there's the odd couple of little ones. But basically, you are, it's almost like you're running at somebody with a machine gun. Okay. Uh, you have no defense. And all the time that he's, he's sailing straight, a bit like the painting, sailing straight for us, we, we are side on firing back. And that's the point in which the battle is won or lost. Either we as French and Spanish uh, artillery can knock those ships out, knock the masts down, sink, you know, actually hit them below the waterline so they list and sink. Or what's going to happen is that those ships are going to come alongside us, which is, is what happened. Yeah. At which point, when they're then alongside the front of our ship, yeah. we can't fire at them, but they can fire straight at us. And not only fire straight at us, they can actually board us. Okay. So they get so close to each other that they start jumping on. So when Nelson is actually killed, he's shot. He's still on his, he's on his ship and he's organizing things. He's sending these messages by flags, the famous, um, the famous, uh, he raises the flag, um, England expects every man to do his duty. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, which is just told in a series of flags. That's how he communicates from ship to ship. But actually, he's shot by a French uh, marksman who's up in the up in the on the sails, shooting down, and a lucky shot gets gets Nelson in the in the chest. This ship plays a really major role, though, because it causes all sorts of damage. It gets right amongst the Franco-Spanish fleet, and it smashes them to bits. So, people in Britain would have known it. It's called the Fighting Temeraire. I think the sailors themselves, I believe, knew it as the Saucy Temeraire for reasons I don't really understand. But it shows that they were very affectionate towards this ship. But what are we, 25, 24 years later, sorry, 34 years later, um, it's redundant. And it's being pulled off here to be, you know, basically... Anything that's worthwhile within it is going to be taken away, like cabinets and things like that. The cannons might be taken away, reused or melted down. And so whole, even though it made such a big part of the, the battle that it didn't get saved? Didn't get saved. So the only ship that was saved is the Victory. Victory. And the Victory down in Portsmouth, it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's um, yeah. It's probably not an original piece of wood on that ship. It's constantly being you know, yeah. rebuilt and rebuilt, but it's the same. It's essentially the same ship, I suppose. So on the one hand, you've got a fantastic story here, which even, you know, Turner was patriotic. Yes. British are very patriotic. We love, you know, we love our history of winning battles. Um, 
and this was a great battle against the French and 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 Spanish, and even in you know the eighteen forties, but even continuously, constantly in in you know looking back to our victorious past and our brave, courageous seamen, and so it's taken off to be scrapped. But then you start looking at the picture itself. So, such a, yeah, it's such a lovely picture. So there's two things here. One is I, what I love about when you start looking at paintings is how. There's no, there's no accidents in paintings, in my opinion. Okay. And Turner and painters like him. And bear in mind, here's another interesting fact. So you have to look at the context. 1870, so 21 years after this, Franco-Prussian War. Prussia invades France and gets to Paris. We often, we, we think about the two world wars, but if you ask throughout France... They'll tell you about the three wars against Germany. And one of them is 1870. And in fact, the fact that they lost in 1870 played into their whole kind of attitude towards Prussia, Germany, um, that led to the 1914, 18 war. Right. Okay. Serious defeat. One of the implications of that 1870 defeat is that a lot of people fled. Amongst those people who fled were artists. Right. And where do they flee to? Well, they fled to Britain. Monet, Pissarro, they come to Britain. And one of the things they do when they're in Britain is they wander up and down Bond Street. And there's some galleries there. Nice. Uh, and they look at other people's paintings. And the painting that they, the painter that they saw, because bear in mind, there's no television. There's no, you know, how do they get to see paintings? Well, more or less, the only way they get to see them is by physically seeing them, you know? Yeah. Um, some paintings were copied, but usually not. They come to Britain and they are absolutely knocked sideways by Turner. Okay. And it, it, it's not beyond the realms of kind of um, acceptability to suggest that Turner is kind of like the forefather of Impressionism, the proto-Impressionist, if you like. But certainly they're looking at him and they are seeing exactly the kind of things that they want to look at, which is light and how light behaves and the impact of light and the way that light not only um, is part of a painting, but that everything in that painting is being reflected by the type of light that is being shone upon it. Um, they loved, if you look at this painting, there are so many kind of small areas of light. You've got the moon, top left, if you look carefully, you've got the moon, which Slightly unrealistically, if you look directly beneath it, it's kind of like a shaft of moonlight, which you would never really get, but he's just playing with it. But then if you look down, follow that line all the way down, there's almost like some moonlight on the water mm -hmm. down there, bottom left, near that piece of floating wood. You come across, you've got the sun. I think we can assume that this is a sunset. And again, you've got the, the reference there to the sunset of an old Britain you know, um, I guess it's a sunset or on the sunrise. How would we tell? How would we know? I don't know. I don't know. I'm either. assuming because of the moon, maybe. Well, that could be either way. What yeah. about the white flag? Why is there a white flag? Why is there a white flag? Uh, could that? Um, is that just because they are? Well, the end. The ensign. Ensign is uh, would be white and red, wouldn't it? Good question. That. Have a look. Um, but 
also just look at the structure of it. If you, if you look at the structure of it, that's what I always find really interesting. So, because obviously Turner, like any painter, starts with a blank canvas. So he's got to think to himself, okay, blank canvas. So where am I going to put my horizon line? So what's that? That's about, what would you say, a third? It's not a high, it's not a quarter, is it? It's about mm. a third, maybe it's a quarter of the way. Quite a low horizon. Mm -hmm. Gives him a big sky. Yeah. One thing that's very important here is the kind of blue triangle. Okay. Now, you'll see this in, in Renaissance paintings. Leonardo is a great example. But there was this colour theory, this sense that you want your oranges and your reds to be in the foreground and your blues to be in the background. And that gives a real sense of depth. Monet, when he's planting Giverny, and I've made a couple of films about this now. When he, I mean, for Monet, gardens were just as much an artwork as a painting. Yeah. And in the autumn, when he planted his flowers, which he'd collected, he'd ordered, he's thinking about the, the, the arrangement of colours. And often it'd be oranges and reds in the foreground and blues in the background, and that, he felt, would give a real depth. And so when spring came and these flowers started to flower and he could just walk straight out of his house and set up his easel, he'd have this kind of colour coordination in front of him. If you, were to, if you were to take this painting, if you were to reverse this, which would be slightly odd and we would find it odd, but if you, made, if you had blues in the front and oranges in the background, which I suppose can happen, yeah. we see that on Brighton, yeah. don't we yes, sometimes? Yes, always. Um, it actually would feel odd. It would feel flat. It, might, it would feel inverted. So very deliberate here. This blue triangle, which basically starts, it's inverted, well, it's not inverted, is it? It starts more or less the same place, just above the waterline, and essentially goes up to the top. There's obviously a triangle that very much um, is, is shading, framing the boats. Again, you look at those boats. This is something that's in paintings all the time. Line of sight. I love looking at the line of sight in a painting because, okay. again, there's no accident to this. So let's have a look. Which is what draws you in. Draws you in. So painting, you, you can't see the painting. You come to the painting for the first time. I would suggest you immediately would look at the ship. And again, fighting Temeraire, he's made it quite white. Yes. That's not it. I mean, obviously, not. It's, it's fake. It's not really going to be that white. No. But your eye's drawn straight to it because your eye is biologically drawn to the brightest point and so you know when i'm filming an interview i'll always make sure i don't have an open you know a window or a lamp or a light off to the side of the interviewee because your eye will just keep being drawn to that it's just how your eye works so here you've got two points of light um which is the sun or the ship and i think the ship is more dominant so i think your eye goes straight to the ship now i can tell you exactly how your eye worked laura yes so you've gone, you've looked at the ship first. Yes. You've then gone up the side of the ship without even really noticing it. There are some um, lines there, which are kind of black lines. You see them yes. kind of diagonals. I can see that. I'm assuming that's ropes. Yeah. So your eyes would go up there mm -hmm. and then you hit the masts. And again, these nice white masts suggesting that the, the sails are all wrapped up. I would imagine the sails would have been taken down by this point. But anyway... But again, your eyes are drawn to those white, those white uh, sails. You might go up the top of the mast, but you come straight back down again. 
And then look at that smoke. Yeah. Now that smoke, it's not an accident that it's going top left to bottom right because it's created another triangle there. Yeah. So your eyes have gone up to the mast and it's going to go down the smoke. On the way going down the smoke, in case, you, in case you're, there's any reason why your eyes getting a bit distracted, there is that white flag which also keeps you in that around that triangle. I mean, clearly that's not a flag of surrender. So um, Maybe it's just because it was his last journey. Could be something like that. I mean, there'll be some naval, as you say, it might be, you know. And in fact, I can't, what exactly, that flag is on the steamboat, which is obviously dragging the ship along. Anyway, you come down, the, you come down to the uh, top of the black mast. Black mast has a little bit of white on it. Now, actually, that white on the front of the mar front of the um, no. chimney makes absolutely no, no sense. No, because okay. the sun, the sun and the moon are both behind yeah. it. But we don't, we don't question it. <laughs> then you've got another <laughs> question, Turner. Don't question Turner. But then you've got <laughs> another, you've got another boat to the side with a sail. <clears throat> I've always been slightly confused by that boat with the sail and the white yeah. sail because. The steamer's probably going at some lick. Although yeah. he's oh, well, maybe not. I mean, he is tugging quite a heavy weight. Either way, look at that sail. Look at the way that that's positioned. Again, it's the same triangle. <clears throat> you follow that triangle down, where are you going to come to? You're going to come to the other ship in the background, which, again, is all part of that triangle. And, it, and, it, and just to make it even really, really clear, you follow that, that little ship in the background. You follow this the line of its right-hand side sails and you come to a little white post. That little white post, you know, it's just some post in the middle of the water. Yeah, okay. There's absolutely no, no reason, reason to be there, except it's completing that triangle. Okay. Now, when you've completed that, your eye will do one of two things. It'll either think, hmm, I might have another look at that, or much more likely, it'll go, it'll, it'll go, it's, it's like it's like following following a little mouse it's going to go scampering across because when you hit that little white post to your right, there's like a little black uh, um, circle. Now it's possible that's supposed to be another little boat because there could be some smoke above it or it's just something again in the water. Um, but by the time you get to that black thing, your eye is clearly then going to go to the sun. All right, you're on your way to the sun. Oh, I love that sunset. I now, think it's a sunset. Yeah. I, 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 sunset would metaphorically make more sense, wouldn't it? Because it's a sunset on an old way of, an old, you know, well, the old world. And the boat's final journey. Final journey. It's quite romantic. It is quite romantic. And in, I don't think, I mean, you could perhaps suggest one or two, uh, maybe there's one or two people on the steamboat if you look really carefully. Yeah. It could be on the side there. Oh, yeah. But just following this thing through about how he's controlled your eyes. Mm. So you get to the sun. Directly beneath the sun, there is something black in the water. And he's basically saying, that, that's a stop. That's like, don't look down here. That's not where you're supposed to be looking now. Okay. Because you don't want to look at black. So actually what you do now is you get to the sun, then you look up. And that is, if you look at that carefully... It is extraordinary. Yeah, no, it is. And it's 
Absolutely. And of course, you can imagine a Monet and a Pissarro and all the rest of them um, just looking at that and thinking. So because of that pose there, that's made my eye go to the sky. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, stopping you kind of going down, even without, even in my opinion, because it's all my opinion, obviously, but even subconsciously, you're not looking down. Yeah. It makes you look up. Mm -hmm. It's it's always, always pointing you to look up. I've never, ever looked at a painting like this before in my life, Bill. Well, and then if you look really carefully. Yeah. Really carefully. And mm-hmm. actually, I'd not really noticed this so much before, but to the right of the sun. Yeah. Those are buildings. And in fact. It looks like Big Ben, doesn't it? It looks like Big Ben. It's definitely there. And the Houses of Parliament. Mm. Huh. So. I thought we were further down the Thames than that. That's interesting. I wonder if that is, um. Well, when I mean, I did, it, is, it is being towed up the Thames. So that, well, when that, I did do a bit of revision, because obviously I did something. Good. <laughs> it said it was going to Rotherhithe. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Well. It is coming down the Thames. So, one, so it must have been stored somewhere. I wonder where it would have been stored after the war then. I guess after, I don't know actually whether it fought again after um, the Battle of Trafalgar. I guess it would have been taken to one of the dockyards on the Thames. And stored there. Um, and then um, I wonder if it's coming. Do you know what? I've never thought about this before. I bet it's coming up the Thames. I have no idea. So it's been stored. So we need to do some more revision. It's, uh, it's, well, that's the thing it's about given us more, more questions and answers. But that's great, isn't it? Mm. You look at a painting. Actually, I've never ever looked at a painting like this before anyway, so... But that answers, but that's what I love about it. It's like, okay, so where do you, so after the Battle of Trafalgar, not only have you got damaged ships, you've got ships that now feel like they're a bit out of date. You've also got the French and Spanish ships that you've captured. Yeah. Well, where do you take them? I have no idea. So do you take them back to Chatham? Do you take them to, um, I think that, um, the fighting Temeraire went to Sheerness. Okay. Um, and then it's, and Sheerness is, um, isn't that on the, on the mouth of the Thames? Yes. Okay. As far as I'm aware. As I mean. And so she's come up. So actually she's coming up the Thames, which means that the way he's painted it with possibly the Houses of Commons, uh, the Houses of, of Parliament, Parliament and Big Ben on the right yeah. is wrong because it would have been coming the other way. So again, he's playing with it because. Okay. Because of the way he's controlling your eye, we read left to right in our culture, and it would be confusing to put that, to, to show it properly and have that little bit of detail on the left, you would just miss it because you wouldn't, you're only going to look at that right at the end of looking at the painting. It's almost like, you and by the way. Yeah. Um, fascinating. Now, think, think about... Um, it is fascinating. I love it. Think about Turner as well. And I never thought I would love it. When you first said it to me, I thought, oh, no. But it's what, but it's... I it's, actually thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do this week? And this is be a bit boring. <laughs> How sad is that? And well, now I can answer some questions on the chase, Phil. But also, isn't it a painting that you could just... I love it. ...look at and look at again? The colours are incredible. Yeah. And, yeah. Colour theory. I would or, have it hanging in my house. It wouldn't look right. <laughs> I'm not going to say no to it. You have to take down all those pictures. <laughs> it really wouldn't look right. kids did when they were six. Exactly. But then I don't know if I'm allowed to say. Uh, Same thing. My like. wedding reception was at the famous angel in Rotherhithe 
Oh, there you go. And it was just down from, we could see the, the House of Parliament so it would fit in really nicely. Because like you said, when you put things on the wall. Oh, so Rotherhithe is very close, isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe it it's just... Really, it, that's why we picked this. And the pub's in the middle of a council estate. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Well, maybe he's... I mean, not maybe he's turning the... Sh- I mean, it is thought that Turner saw this being brought up the Thames. So maybe it's right. being turned around. So maybe it is possible it came up the Thames and they turned it around to bring it into the actual docks. I mean, of course, the Thames was all docks at that time. I mean, it the thing about... really busy as well. Really busy. Oh, I can imagine. Much more busy than it yeah. is today. Absolutely. Well, one, another, another really interesting thing about the Thames is that uh, before the embankment was built, mm. um, it, was a, it was much wider. And because it was wider, it was shallower. And that meant it was more prone to freezing. To the time of Shakespeare, 1600s, yeah. um, it, there were times when the Thames froze and people could skate across. Oh, okay. So famously, with famous story with Shakespeare where... His original theatre burnt down. It's like Robin Cousins. Going off on a tangent. But (laughs) his theatre burnt down. Yeah. And he, I think I've got this story right, but he then transports what's left of it across the Thames, over the ice, to to where the globe now is. Um, But when they built, when they started building up the Thames and building up the embankment, they narrowed the Thames, and by narrowing it, it meant that it was deeper at this point. Which okay. meant, meant the water flowed faster, which meant it didn't freeze so often. Um, so Shakespeare could put his skates away. <laughs> Sorry, exactly, people. he could put his skates away. That was the end of winter skating. Um, but uh, but Turner used to, I mean, to and Constable and lots of them. But then you got Whistler and others. I mean, the Thames was just a fascinating place to paint. And again, they're all absolutely intrigued by light. And of course, the, the, the combination of, of sky and water is wonderful for an artist because yeah. it's never the same. Even now, if you go to the Thames, most of the time it looks pretty murky, but you know, you can play with that a little bit. Also, don't forget, and Turner, uh, no, not Turner, Monet shows this really well. You know, all that coal dust in the air, all that smog. Yeah. Uh, actually had meant you would get some extraordinarily, extraordinarily coloured skies. So would they all have been standing on the air, on the side with well, the easels up? Yeah. Amazing. London Bridge or on the embankment. Can you imagine. Yeah. They'd just be there, Monet and <laughs> Fancy Whistler and Turner. To the pub. Yeah. They'd go and have a pub. Oh, go that'd to a be pub. really good. And go sometimes... Because sometimes, I don't know so much about Turner, but someone like Monet, he, there's many examples of this, where he would have maybe four canvases next to each other okay. on the go at the same time. Yeah, okay. Because you have to allow the paints to dry. But he's constantly trying to capture light. The light's constantly changing. So he's, he's not just got one canvas on the go, he's got multiple canvases okay. on the go. Fantastic. Don't know if there's any evidence of that with Turner, to be honest. Um, oh, I love that. Can you imagine just wandering along, seeing them all? I don't know how I don't know how welcome welcoming Turner would have been. Was he not known for being welcoming then? He was a, a tetchy was char- he? character. Oh, I think we could have I think we could have livened him up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> could have straight into the famous Brother Hyde. Do you know <laughs> the <I> think, angel? <laughs> I suspect that's where we would have found him. I think I think he was where I think we should go back to. But you know what it is with these guys, and nothing's really changed, is 
Um, I don't think that artists, and I include composers that I've made some films about, they're not after fame and fortune. What they want is to be respected. Mm. And I think you see this time and time again, again, see it with the Impressionists a lot. When they are refused um, by the salon, or in Britain's case, say Turner or Constable, someone like that is refused by the Academy, or they're not, they're not given the respect because they knew how good their paintings were. Right. And they weren't respected. That's what really bothered them. Okay. So it um, was the salon was the thing. Salon was the thing. What? This up. Um, yeah. So a beautiful painting. Um, well, I, I suppose to be right. Honestly, thank you, Phil, because. I'm supposed to be writing a painting of the week about it, but I don't know. I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing else to say now. All I know is that I just loved it. And, and and when you said last week, come on, we're going to talk about this painting, and I didn't know anything about it, I have to say I did feel a bit embarrassed. But never, you know me, Phil. Never. And feel- now I do know more. Now I can answer some questions about it on the chase. I don't think there's ever anything to be embarrassed about. I think it's really nice that... Um, that I can be educated on this because honestly if you'd have said to me Laura anything about it I would have thought no I'm keeping out I'm keeping out of this one I won't get involved in this conversation because I don't know anything about it but now I do and I, and uh, yeah it's really lovely Thank you for listening to the Painting of the Week podcast for more information please visit our website at 7th-art.com or contact us by emailing info at seventh-art.com. See you next time.